My name is August McLaughlin, and I've been contemplating Girl Boners for years. It's time for Girl Boner Radio with August McLaughlin, a spicy blend of personal stories, in-depth reporting, and inspiration. Girl Boner is where good girls go for sexual empowerment. Listen in as August McLaughlin, award-winning health and sexuality writer, explores female sexual pleasure like no one else. She's the big sister slash girlfriend you've always wanted, and she loves to talk sex. And now I'm wondering, is this what happens with MS? Does it just become a sequence of demolition to the body? Like a pattern of dating the wrong guys, slowly breaking you down until you're a shell of your old existence? This quote stems from a memoir written by today's guest, Corey Martin, whose award-winning memoir, Lovesick, explores dating, life in Hollywood, and dealing with multiple sclerosis. Welcome back to Girl Boner Radio, everyone. I'm your host, August McLaughlin, and I'm so thankful that you're listening. And I'm very excited about today because you may have noticed writers are some of my favorite guests. My biases accepted. And because also, thanks to Corey, we're going to be shedding light on a really important topic, what it's like to date and find love when you're living with chronic disease. Considering that more than 125 million people in the U.S. alone have at least one chronic disease— If you don't have one yourself, someone close to you probably does. We'll also hear Dr. Megan Fleming's thoughts for a listener who was recently diagnosed with arthritis and has concerns about ways it might impact her sex life and relationship moving forward. If this episode turns you on or inspires you to explore pleasure products like hands-free vibrators or massage candles or awesome lube, head to thepleasurechest.com. Or you can shop at one of their stores in L.A., Chicago, or New York for awesome free sex ed workshops. That's thepleasurechest.com. For more Girl Boner fun, please sign up for occasional updates by email at augustmclaughlin.com or girlboner.org. You can also purchase my Girl Boner books on Amazon and most anywhere books are sold. Both books in the series are full of stories and journaling prompts, all designed to heighten your sexual self-discovery journey and help you along your sexual empowerment path with fun and with joy and, of course, with pleasure. And if you enjoy this podcast and haven't yet subscribed, please take a moment to hit that button on Apple Podcasts or wherever you may be listening. As an indie show, that kind of support is especially helpful. You can also show support by leaving a rating and review and sharing it with your friends. Now I'm so pleased to welcome Corey Martin to the show. A graduate of the University of Southern California, Corey has a BA in English Creative Writing and spent time studying literature at Cambridge University in England. By the age of 25, she'd garnered writing credits on the hit TV show The O.C. and has been asked by Scholastic to pen three young adult novels based on the same TV series. Her essays have appeared online with Psychology Today, Exojane, Everyday Health, and Elephant Journal. For more about her story, definitely check out her book, Lovesick. Thank you for joining me, Corey. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me. So tell us what your life was like before you were diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. You're in your late 20s. Were you dating then? Yeah, I was dating. I had, you know, I was working in TV. I had this great career that I thought was going to go places. Um, You know, my friends, a few of them had started to get married, but we weren't really settling down. We were just kind of like enjoying life because we finally had the money to go out in L.A. Um, You know, we weren't working those 80-hour weeks that we were when we were 22. And so I felt like, wow, this is it. Like, this is what your late 20s are supposed to be. And then... I was 28 when I got diagnosed, and I was like, oh, no, life is over. What was the first symptom that you experienced? Um, My first symptom was numbness in my hands. Um, It would come and go. And I honestly, I just thought it was like, oh, I was sleeping weird, something, you know, stress of work, whatever it was. And I told my doctor at a physical, and she's like, I'm sure it's nothing, but how are you sleeping? And I said, I don't sleep. I'm in a lot of pain. Like, the numbness wakes me up. And she's like, well, that's not good, but I'm sure it's fine. You're young, you're healthy. Um, She sent me to a neurologist and they started running tests. And then by the time I got the MRI of my brain, it was like very clear that I had lesions on my brain. And she was like, this is probably what you have. I'd see a specialist. And then the specialist agreed. And so taking it from there. What a great doctor to 
ask you questions and to also not diminish anything. Yes. You know, there are many wonderful doctors I've also heard from people who get told it's no big deal. And that, you know, you didn't know to even mention the sleeping part, you know, and all these things a lot of people experience. So once you had, the first time you heard the diagnosis, what went through your mind? Were you familiar with the disease? Um, I was familiar because I'd gotten on Google and I had like typed in my symptoms. That can be so dangerous. It's so dangerous and so scary. And like, Dr. Google is not a good doctor. He's very mean. And he will tell you all the worst things that could happen to you. Um, yeah, so when I first heard the diagnosis, I, I remember breaking down in tears, going like, what is going to happen? I don't know what my life holds. And it had been a series of appointments. And one appointment was like, oh, we don't think it's anything. And my parents had flown out from Chicago to be with me for that appointment. And so they thought it was just a vitamin deficiency. So I took some vitamins. And so by the time I went back to check in with that doctor, my parents were like, you're fine, you're fine. And so I was all alone at this appointment. And I think that was the hardest part part was that I just didn't have anyone to call or, you know, I could call home, but I couldn't, like, there was nobody. All my friends were at work. Um, mm. I didn't have a boyfriend. I didn't have, like, a significant person in my life to go, like, help. Can I come see you? Like, what oh. do I do? Yeah, that must have been a really isolating feeling. Mm -hmm. You know, you have doctors who are being considerate and kind and everything, but it's very different. They're used to diagnosing every day. And yes. they're like, this is really terrifying. Mm -hmm. What did they tell you about treatment? Um, so the first neurologist, who was just a neurologist, not a specialist, um, she's like, okay, so here, have you seen the drugs that are out there? Like, I want you to go home and research them all, and then I'll put you on one. And I was just like, wait a minute, like... You just said, I have this, and now it's just, this pick is what's going to Yeah, pick one. And I was like, <laughs> yeah. wait a minute. Like, I want to consider this and consider my health. And like, yeah, I had numbness, but I was also pretty healthy. Like, I didn't look sick. I didn't have crazy symptoms. And so I thought, hmm, maybe I'll seek a second opinion. And so I did. I went to the actual MS specialist, and she confirmed it. But she said, you know, it looks like things are pretty stable. Let's just keep watching you. And so she didn't immediately put me on treatment, which I was like, thank you. Which is really great. And I also love that you had the wherewithal to seek a second opinion because it's pretty common for people to get either misdiagnosed mm -hmm. or told that this is your option. Yes. So it was more of a wait and see approach? Mm-hmm. Wait and see. And it's still kind of like that. I mean, things have progressed. I've also been diagnosed with another disease like last year. Lupus, right? Yes. So, And for anyone who doesn't know what lupus is, I know it's an autoimmune yeah. disorder. Yeah. So it's another autoimmune disorder that attacks, it can attack anything. So it can be your lungs, your blood, your bones, your um, joints, you know, your brain, anything of that sort. Um, it hit me with fatigue, crazy bone pain, and it hit my lungs where if I walked up the steps, I was totally out of breath. And I had been, like, a triathlete. Like, I had always been active. Did you think active. that was MS? Yeah. Because that's could be, right? Exactly. So I thought it was a mess. But I went back to that same first doctor. She's been my primary care doctor. And I brought this up. And she was like, I, th I think this could be MS. But it also sounds very odd, too. Let me send you to a rheumatologist. And, like, thank God for her because I have heard so many stories, like you said, where people just, doctors ignore it. They tend to ignore women more than anyone else. But mm -hmm. this is a female doctor, and she just listens to me. And I feel oh. so grateful that I've had her in my life. Yeah. That's incredible. And such yeah. a good lesson for anyone listening to go, it's always good to double check. If someone's yes. kind of, you know, with very good intentions, but kind of like writing you off, advocate for yourself, which can be challenging. Oh, yeah. You know, because sometimes you feel, I know I have felt like a hypochondriac at times because mm -hmm. my appendix burst in my early 20s. And so now I'm like, I listen to my symptoms. Yeah. And I'm like, do they think I'm like overly worried? It's <laughs> like, who cares? This is your right. health. Yeah. Like, it's important. It is. And I've understood that autoimmune diseases, a lot of times they do coexist. Mm -hmm. Is that what you were told? Did, did they tell you this could happen when you have MS? No. <laughs> so surprising. So this was completely surprising. Like, I actually thought that once you get one, like, why would the universe, God, whoever you believe in, however power, why would they force another terrible thing upon you? Like, like what are the chances? Yeah, what are the chances? Like, you've already been through this. And then when I got diagnosed with lupus a year ago, I was like, I started researching 
And everything I found was like, yes, once you have one autoimmune disease, you probably have another and maybe another. And this might just be your body for the rest of your life. Of things. Yeah. yeah. And what was the treatment or what were you told about lupus moving forward? Um, so I was put on a drug called Plaquenil, which is an anti-malarial. Um, and that works to calm the inflammation because they want to keep that down so it doesn't affect your major organs like your kidney and your heart and all of that. Oh, good. So good. that's helped, but I'm still not 100% yeah. normal. Yeah, yeah. It must be really affirming to find out okay, it has a name, there is a treatment, yes. but then also to know, like, this is a journey. Yes. And I imagine it teaches you a lot about trusting <laughs> the unknown, mm-hmm. which, interestingly, around the same time that you were diagnosed with MS, you really went, like, gung-ho dating. Oh, yeah. Was that an intentional, like, did the MS diagnosis prompt that? I think in some way it did, and maybe it's the writer in me that was like, hmm, what am I going to do with this? Well, what I know how to do with this is write. So I'm just going to start writing. And then I was like, and I went to the library and I was like, who's writing books on MS? And it was all older married men, famous men. And I was like, there's nobody young telling their story. So maybe I'll tell my story. And then I started thinking like, this was the age of sex in the city. And this is what, you know, like people were starting to talk about their sexuality. So it wasn't so scary to then go put your stories out there. And You know, I also had the thought when I got diagnosed, and I don't know why this came into my head because I had never thought about marriage. It was just, oh, yeah, that might happen one day. But suddenly I was like, nobody's going to want to marry me because of this. And it's a crazy thought, but it was one I really believed in at the time. And I thought, like, you know, dating's hard enough. Why why add this extra thing that someone has to deal with and accept, especially when you're young? Totally. And I imagine a lot of people go there. Mm-hmm. But don't say anything about it. Yeah. Which is one of the beauties of writing mm-hmm. is that your stories will reach people and I'm sure do reach many people who haven't felt either compelled or comfortable reaching out and talking and saying, I'm worried about this. Like it's a vulnerable thing. Oh, for sure. And I mean, people have reached out to me since then and, you know, said like, thank you for sharing this. I felt all the same things. I just didn't have anyone to tell. Mm. You know, And I'm like, oh, OK, well. At least I touched one person, you know, like the first person that sent me that message. I was like, this was all worth it to put my story out there and to deal with the like crazy comments on Amazon or whatever. You know, like there's always those bad reviews online that you're Mm -hmm. like, oh, really? I know. I know. And you have to like proactively focus elsewhere. Yes. Because those are the ones that stick in your head. Mm -hmm. And it's so important to have boundaries around that. Like I keep a document on my computer of positive things that people have written or said. Yeah. As just like a rainy day list because it's we're human. Mm-hmm, it gets that's to us. smart. And a lot of times the troll is actually struggling with something. It's never about us, really, oh, yeah. <laughs> but it, it can hurt for sure. So when you started dating, what was your process? Were you kind of looking for a relationship or were you, I'm going to explore? Um, I think it came from a, I'm going to explore. Like I liked, I liked dating in LA. Like I liked that it was a city full of really interesting people. I wasn't back in my small town in Indiana where I grew up, which was great, but it was very similar. You know, where here it's like you could meet a director, a writer, a finance person, a, a person who's just fully creative and doing their own thing and has figured something else out. And so I like threw myself into that. And in the back of my head, I always had the idea, like, can I marry this person? And it probably like either allowed me to go too far with somebody because I like placed this idea of like, ooh, his mom does this and his family's like this. Like I could see this all meshing. Whereas like there were so many other red flags that I ignored. Um, So yeah, I guess I did throw it in there. I just went for it. Yeah, yeah. And what were the first experiences like? And did you tell people I have MS? Was that part of your experience to kind of see how it would fall, like how people would accept it? Um. Yes. And I sort of played with it. Um, I would tell people right away. I would wait three months. I would wait one week. I would just be at a bar and I'd be like, yeah, I have MS. And, you know, (laughs) want to go out. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And some people would freak out and some people would be like, this is amazing. You know, some guys, because they're guys and they're just trying to get home with you. I had one guy who was like, oh, yeah, my dad had MS. And I'm like, I had there's no cure. How does that work? And he's like, oh, he cured himself. And so stupid me in my head goes like, 
I should marry this guy. Like, I should meet this guy's parents. I can't wait to have dinner with him. I literally just met him at a bar. There was no future. That is so endearing. I feel like I just watched part of a movie. You know, like, just <laughs> yes. the, because that spark of hope. Yes. Like, there was someone like, figured it out. Someone figured Let's it out. Oh, my God. Like, yeah. I should be in this family. Like, this is perfect. And then, you know, we kept talking. And then I think towards the end of the night, he went to kiss me. And then he's like, oh, sorry, I can't. I have a girlfriend. I was like, why did you spend the entire night sort of getting these hopes up? And like, you know, I had played out my whole future and then it just disappeared. And I was like, oh, okay, that's dating in so Los Angeles. LA. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. It's like, yeah, it's an adventure. And I love that you approached it that way mm-hmm. because ideally dating is fun. Mm-hmm. And I know I used to put pressure on myself coming from the Midwest too, like, because you think your date has to lead to marriage if it keeps, you know, if yes. date goes to number two, number three, then eventually, of yeah. course. Um so to have an experience where you're like, I'm going to have fun and meet people, but then you do meet a lot of people and some really interesting experiences. What was one of the more fun, vivid, positive experiences along the way? Um, I mean, I would think that like my boy, my current boyfriend, we've been together almost six years now. And, you know, we had been dating for a little bit and I thought, OK, it's time to tell him we were out to dinner and... I told him, and he was just like, oh, okay. And I'm like, that's it? That's, that's the better. <laughs> oh, yeah. I was like, all right, fine. Went to the bathroom, came back, and he was on his phone. And I was like, oh, no, total L.A. guy, like, just... Calling his Uber. Exactly. <laughs> oh, Calling no. Uber. He's on Tinder. I don't know. Like, oh, you know. <laughs> and, um, no, he was researching MS, and he was like, oh, there's so many, like, new options, and I think we'll be okay. And so that Aww. was the good story that came out of it. That's so sweet. He wanted to be supportive right yeah. away mm-hmm. and just saw you and was like, this is part yeah, of Yeah, this you. is part of it. And wow. that was great. So I received a question from a listener that ties into this a little bit that Dr. Megan Fleming is going to answer because I imagine all chronic illnesses and all illnesses and conditions, whether we have them temporarily or they're, they're ongoing, affect our intimate lives and our sexuality. This question came from Izzy, who wrote this. I was diagnosed with a rare form of arthritis that is both progressive and potentially debilitating. I'm in my 30s now and luckily have started good treatment. But the timing of this is interesting. I'm also in love for the first time, like really probably forever in love. My partner slash girlfriend is very understanding, but I'm worried about long-term effects of arthritis on our sex life. Would love any suggestions if we, as we have not been very adventurous or creative in bed. Not a complaint. Our sex is awesome between my pain flares and was before. Wondering if we'll have to change things because I almost always orgasm the same way and already feel bad if my pain limits her sexuality in the future. Izzy, thank you for that thoughtful question. It shows so much care um, for your partner and for you. And here is what Dr. Megan Fleming of GreatLifeGreatSex.com had to say. Izzy. Thanks so much for your question. And, you know, I am just thrilled for you that you're in your 30s now. And as you're sharing with us, are in love in a sense for the first time. And I hope anybody listening here is hearing that because, you know, even in my office, I often hear people feeling, you know, some level of hopelessness or even helplessness that they haven't yet found love. And so, again, your own experience is sort of... um, that hope and that reality, right, that I think everybody needs to hear. Everything sort of happens in its own time and for its own reasons. And so anyway, I'm thrilled for you, the fact that you're in love and that your girlfriend is very understanding. Um, Because it's really important. You're already, in a sense, rolling that camera forward and imagining, anticipating, you know, what is the process of this arthritis going to look like? And the reality is, ultimately, I don't know and you don't know. But that, you know, you want to feel prepared. And it's also great to hear that you've started great treatment. Um, because again, it really is having those healthcare providers who you have the ability to sort of share what's going on, even to talk about your sexuality. Because again, often when it comes to um, any aspects of, uh, you know, treating chronic pain or even people who have, you know, difficulties, say pain or arthritis in their hands, you wouldn't believe how many providers don't even ask about masturbation, right? Or how the, the pain in their hands may be impacted impacting, right? They're able to give themselves pleasure. So um, hopefully, you know, through this conversation with your providers, you're going to get everything that you need. And so some of the things I want to say to you is that 
you know, anytime somebody has the experience of pain, the reality is it's always fluctuating. And so it sounds like you are already taking advantage of, right, those times where it's, um, you're feeling better and you probably have more energy and uh, you're more comfortable. And so that's one of the things I just want to start to highlight, which is when it comes to chronic pain, usually predictably, fairly predictably, there's certain conditions that either make your um, pain better or worse. So things like weather, stress, uh, positions, you know, sitting too long, standing too long, um, how long it's been since you may have taken medication, all these things can have an impact on your pain. Um, and interestingly, and I think an important piece to say is that, and this is based on the research of Beverly Whipple, um, that actually indicates sexual activity can and may reduce levels of pain by stimulating an analgesic process that is separate from the role of distraction. Um, and so what we recognize is that orgasm itself and the release of sort of dopamine, the oxytocin, orgasm actually raises the pain threshold so that people though, that have already indicated their pain level, it's actually lowered once they've achieved orgasm. So if you haven't yet you know, explored and experiment with that, I want you to just know that that is something that might be, as I often say, a tool in your toolbox. And then most importantly, it's just to recognize how do you sort of cultivate and capitalize right on the times that are better for you, where you know, you're more rested and relaxed and, or, you know, what positions importantly, um, have, you know, less physical exertion or, um, using pillows for support. There's so many things or thinking about the role of right sex toys or vibrators so that, you know, you, you don't have to use the same level um, of endurance or stimulation maybe with your hands or your mouth, right? So thinking about there's so many ways of giving and receiving pleasure and noticing that, um, you know, of course, pain in and of itself, when it's in a flare, as you said, is not sexy and doesn't feel good. And we don't desire that which hurts, right? That being said, it's also true that, as I said, you can capitalize on these times when you are more rested and relaxed, you are more in the mood, you've maybe just taken your pain medication, right? Another thing to think about also on the positive side is thinking about how to, you know, a hot bath or shower, which could warm, or even a heating pad, right? To warm up your muscles and maybe ease some of the stiffness in your joints. So I think it's about being creative as well as opening the dialogue and the conversation with your partner. Because again, this is, I don't know and you don't know, it's its an adventure and it's a journey. And as we often talk about, there's so many ways of giving and receiving pleasure, right? It's not even just about, um, you know, penetration in terms of vaginal stimulation. It's like, I, I often say the biggest sex organs are mind, right? And the biggest organ is our skin, right? Head to toe. And like most couples who fall into what I call scripted sex, which is limited repertoire, right? You have an opportunity to really expand this repertoire and like head to toe, explore erogenous zones, touching, building arousal, feeling pleasure, and the connection and the intimacy with your partner. So I really want you to take away that even though I don't know and you don't know what's going to happen in the future, your head is in the right space because your intention and your desire is to give and receive pleasure. And really, that's the heart of the matter. Um, and so as always, would love to hear how things go. I love what Megan said about how extraordinary it is to fall in love because that is so true. And I'm really happy for you, Izzy, for that. And also what she said about knowing that certain conditions will make your pain worse or better and that that kind of awareness can be really helpful. And also Beverly Whipple's research, she is so amazing. Uh, her studies on orgasm are really important. And the pain relieving parts, I think, are really cool. And also what Megan talked about with using pillows and toys and vibrators, like there there are creative ways to, to work around and maybe seeing it as an adventure that you two are going through together might be really amazing. Um, Corey, so I read this study from 2018 that said, uh, about 75% of women with MS in this particular study said that at some point they had issues with sexual function related to MS. And I imagine that can come from a lot of different things like physical symptoms, emotional symptoms, and really 
the percentage of women in general who <laughs> experience, you know, it's very common for all of us. So I just wonder if that has been, was that part of your concern when you were navigating all of this? Had you, how did you kind of approach sex and intimacy physically? Yeah, I mean, it was part of my concern. I think the biggest and hardest part about finding out I had MS was the unknown of the, like, there's a myriad of symptoms. Nobody can predict what's going to happen. And so I remember there was one point that I had this huge patch on my back that was very numb and, like, water would hit it. I could barely feel it. And I thought, what if that travels down to, like, you know, my nether region and I can't feel sex and I can't enjoy that. And so I worried about that. Um, I've been fortunate that that hasn't happened, but I know it could. And I think, you know, you just kind of go with the flow and, you know, you improvise and you try other things and use toys and do what you need to do. Um, I know you talked about the emotional side of it. And I know my first like real relationship after MS we didn't have sex the whole time, and we were together almost a year. And I thought, like, there was something wrong with him. But looking back, it was me. It was, I hate my body. I'm so scared of what it's going to do that I can't even love. And it's that cliche, like, if you don't love yourself, how is anybody going to love you? But this wasn't even that deeper, like, emotional love. This was, like, I literally hated my body, and I couldn't. I still felt sexy, but I didn't feel like I really wanted to be intimate. Mm. Were there any conversations at all with this person? It's it's a tricky subject to approach yeah. for a lot of people. It was. And I remember we were on a vacation and I remember thinking like, OK, this is it. Like, I'm just going to do it. Like, I felt like, a, you know, imagine you like charging at the bed. Yeah, like I felt like we were in Vegas. So I was like, this is perfect. We'll be out all night, whatever. Little you know. tipsy. Yeah, like it'll be fine. It's staying at the Hard Rock. Like they have condoms in the, you know, mini bar. Like this is great. And like it's got close there, but not there. And then the next day I was like, well, what's why? And he had some excuse, but then I had an excuse. And it just wasn't like clicking. it didn't click. And thank God, like we were not meant to be together and that's fine. But it did teach me a lot about, you know, owning that or learning to like love myself again in that way. That's so important. It really is. And I, the self-love piece seems to be a big part of your journey. And you feel that chronic illness is a gift. Would you speak to that? What do you mean? Yeah, I think it's a gift in the sense that, first, it keeps me in the present moment. Um, I do a lot of yoga. I used to teach yoga. Um, and for me, like, I can't worry about the future because... That is so unknown to me. And I know it's unknown to everybody, but it's like really unknown to me and it makes it very, very present. And I can't think about the past because the past meant I could, you know, go swimming a couple miles or I could jump out into the ocean and I might and I can't do all those things anymore. And so I have to just live in the like, OK, I woke up this morning. How do I feel? I have to check in every day. Like, do I have the energy to even do my work? Do I have the energy? Sometimes I don't have energy to chew my food. Like I don't want to eat like that. That's how bad it gets sometimes. But then there's days where I'm like, I have all the energy and I should enjoy this day and go outside and walk on the beach and do whatever it is. So in that sense, it's a gift of giving you that present moment. But I also think it's a gift because when we talk about dating, like it, it does give you a sort of barometer, right? Like the way people respond to that like most genuine, nice people will have a good response. And even if they don't want to be with you for the long term future, they're not going to be mean to you. They'll at least say like, they'll be honest, I can't handle this, or I could handle this, but I don't see a future. You know, like there's a more honest conversation that has to happen when you have an illness. Mm, that is such an important point. I interviewed an educator, Ashley Manta, a couple of years ago about her experience with having herpes. And she said it is such a beautiful way to sort out partners who she would not have wanted to be with anyway, you know, because when somebody is judging you based on something that is an aspect of your health, you know, you're, you're going to end up ideally with somebody who's much more supportive and understanding and wanting to learn mm -hmm. like, like your partner is. Yeah, it's yeah. very true. You mentioned the, the body image struggles early on and through that, that year. 
has this experience uh, kind of forced you to grow in that? Where are you now with your relationship to your body? Um, I would say it's like a roller coaster. <laughs> um, you know, with that first year, it was like, please don't touch me. Like, even though I was working out and probably looked physically like great, like I look back at pictures and I'm like, wow, like, why didn't I enjoy me at 28? Because I was hot, like, or, you know, whatever. Um, and then you kind of get used to it and everything's good. But of course, you're a human being and things are going to happen. You'll get injured. You'll get sick again. Something will happen. So, um, you know, it's been a year since being diagnosed with lupus. And that really made me readjust again. It made me look at things like, OK, you know, I turn to exercise as my stress relief, as my like thing that made me feel good. But when you can't exercise, then what? Mm. And so I had to find like new things that made me happy. And I think maybe that's the part of self-love is like always looking for that thing. Like you don't have to, once something's gone, you don't have to like give up and say that's it. You can go find something else that replaces that. Uh, for me, I found hula hooping, which is so random, but I love it. Oh, and I awesome. go hula hooping and I have a hula hoop and doesn't so that, require a lot of energy, but it makes me happy again. Is that why? The energy part. It was yeah. you didn't have the energy to do the workouts you were doing before. Mm -hmm. So you adapted. Yeah. Those are skills we can all benefit from so much. And one of the things through sharing your story, I think people also learn that, you know, mm -hmm. and, and the meeting each day and each moment is so beautiful. I have a friend who has chronic illness and she has this wonderful blog called Aim for Even. And she aims. For, it's not like this perfect balance. It's her even in the moment. And I think I learned so much from hearing about how she's navigating that. And you just never know what a day is going to bring. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What are some of the other forms of self-care that have become important to you that might not have been without illness? Um, hmm. I know I've been thinking about this a lot lately. Because um, to me, like the old version self-care was like, go get a massage, get your hair done, like that. But those almost feel superficial now, even though they're not. They feel great. They're great in the moment. But for me, it's like taking time to just like turn off my phone and breathe for a few minutes or, you know, like I said, um, hula hooping or finding these little things I can do. Um, you know, sometimes, like I said, it's a lot of work just to eat. So sometimes like even cooking healthy is too much work. So I found like, okay, I can go to Whole Foods and I can just go to their salad bar and they already chopped all the vegetables so I can buy them all for the week and then I'm good, you know? That's awesome. That's so awesome. You also share about some pretty challenging and very rude things that people might say. Uh, there was an ex who you wrote about in your book. How did he respond to your illness after the fact? Yeah, so we met it was like one of those bar moments. Oh, this is great. He was a writer, too. This sounded perfect. And we dated. And like I told him about MS like almost right away. And he was a little bit older than me. And he was like, ah, no big deal. Fine. We'll get through it. I was like, great. Perfect. And this was like in my early stages of dating where it's like, nobody's going to love me. So here's a guy who does. OK, I'm going for it. And there were other red flags that I ignored. And but then I finally got to a point where like, this isn't going to work out for other reasons. Forget that MS. Like, he's just not for me. So I broke up with him and he sent me the next day text messages like, I'm so happy you broke up with me. Now I can go get married to somebody who will live to see her kids grow up. Like he was just went after like everything I worried about the disease. He said, yeah, that's going to happen to you. I mean, he got like so vulgar. He's like, nobody's ever going to want to have sex with you again. Like you're disgusting. Like you're, you know, your body's falling apart. Meanwhile, I looked normal to everyone else. So it, he just played with my head. And I was like, why would somebody get that mean? But I get it. When your heart is broken, you go at people. But that's exactly that. what I was thinking was he sounds so heartbroken that he wanted he had to try to vilify you somehow mm -hmm. and hurt you because he was feeling so hurt. So he poured salt in wounds, he kind of guessed, oh, this must be a soft spot, you know, e e without rationally going through it, probably <laughs> just like, yeah. which I'm so sorry you went through that. That's horrible. Yeah. Were you able to see those factors when it happened? Or how did you cope with that scenario? Um, so this was, I guess we didn't even have iPhones, but we had texting. So he was texting this. And for something in my brain, I went, I'm going to write this down. And I literally verbatim, and it's still in my journal that's like sitting in my room somewhere. 
and just wrote down everything he said. And then I took clips of it and I sent it to my friends. And I was like, look what happened last night when I broke up with so-and-so. And having those friends to say, like, that is ridiculous. Next time I see, if I see that guy, like, he's going down. And my friends, I remember she sent it to her brother. And her brother was like, oh, I will take that guy down. And I was like, okay, we don't have to get violent. But it was nice to know that I wasn't crazy for thinking this was such a terrible thing for somebody to do. So I was lucky that I had the friends to back me up and say, like, no. Is that something also that's come through this journey or at least been strengthened? Not only being more selective about who you date, but your friends and and distancing from people who aren't supportive versus like, has it has it affected the value of your close circle? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, my close circle is so supportive now. And honestly, they were supportive um, when I was first diagnosed. Like they would call and they would take me out. But I think what happens when you get diagnosed with an illness, people are right there for that first month or whatever. And then it kind of disappears from everyone's head. And they, not that they don't care, but they don't ask about it. And then when my book came out like eight years later, they were like, oh my God, you were going through this for like two years? Why didn't we say anything? Why didn't you say anything? And it's like, well, I didn't think to say anything because I was okay. Um, but now I feel like it opened the doors for them to ask more questions, for me to be more open. And I think maybe that's like a good piece of advice for people is to not be afraid to share that. Um, you do, As women, we don't want to sound like hypochondriacs, like, oh, I'm sick, I'm sick, I'm sick. But if you're actually sick or you're actually feeling down, like, ask for help. It's not a big thing. It's fine. And people will help you. I was also thinking as you were sharing that, that it's a good reminder to check in with people, you mm-hmm. know, not just the day that they go through something or the month after, but but checking in. Do you have any tips on ways to do that? Because I feel like the discomfort sometimes people have when they don't perhaps maybe understand a certain illness or they're afraid to say the wrong thing and then they don't say anything, you know? Yeah. Um, what What's a good way to check in with someone or to respond when someone says, I have MS or I have lupus or I have this whatever it is? Yeah, I think, I mean, the tips, I mean, the things that I like are the people that say, I'm sorry. Um, the things not to say are like, my cousin's boyfriend's whatever has MS and they're totally fine. And you're like, or here, did you try this herb? Like, don't try to cure your friend. Just say, like, I'm sorry you're going through this. It's very simple. I'm just, I'm sorry. This is rough. Is there anything I can do? Um, You know, for me, I'm sort of introverted. So when people say, how are you? And I say, "Mm, fine. I'm not fine. So maybe uh, just ask another question. How was your day? How's your energy today? Mm. Are you in pain today? You know, like, ask the specific things that don't require much extra. You don't have to know all about the disease. You just know that somebody's feeling down. Are you sad today? Are you, you know, what's your pain levels? Whatever that is that you can see your friend struggling with, I think is a good way to start. Mm, I love that. How did you meet your current partner? What was your first experience, your dates like? Um, We met on Match, which I don't even know people use that anymore because there's so many apps now. Um, But it was great. I mean, we actually went on our first date in like a in January and he was the first date I took on match so I was like oh I cannot like just give in to this because I'm I'm open to possibilities it had been like what probably 5 or 6 years that I'd been dealing with MS so I didn't feel this like urge to go out and find the one um and so we had a nice date and I was like he's nice talked about our families. It seemed like everything matched up, but I was not about to go down that road of like, oh, yes, we're getting married. Like, I can see the whole future. I just went, okay. I'm like, call me. I went out of town for work or whatever, and he went out of town, and we didn't go on another date for another month. And then I was like, oh, this guy's, I like this guy. Like, let's see what happens. But it was very slow. Like, I didn't force anything right away. And I think that was the key. It also didn't feel like I had to make excuses for him or I had to come up with ideas why he didn't call or why he was ignoring me or, you know, it was just easy. And I was like, oh, this is what it's supposed to be like. (laughs) Yeah, I love the not having desperation. It's so Mm -hmm. powerful. Yes. Because you aren't just looking for somebody, Uh you know, and that you're just so chill because then you're also not trying to to present something that's not you to try to impress the person and that you let it evolve. 
Was that a shift that happened gradually that you got to that place or how did you get there? Because I imagine many listeners might be in that earlier space. I think that's really common. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, it was a gradual shift and like it was a big experiment, really. I mean, it was like, okay, I'd been dating. I was 20 something. Everything was fun. It was exciting. You were in your late 20s. Like, and then I got diagnosed. And then it was like this like desperation, like you were talking about. of like, I have to get married now before I fall apart and before I can't walk or whatever's going to happen to me. And then it sort of been like a few years later, it was like, okay, nothing terrible has happened to me so far physically. So like, slow down. And then I kind of kept going like, okay, I'll just take things slower and slower. And I don't know if that's just a natural aging process from like your 20s to your 30s, or if it was more the MS kind of taught me that. I'm not sure. Yeah, but. maybe a combination. It's hard to say. Yeah. I, I do feel like at the 20s are a time of, <laughs> of uh, getting a lot of things wrong. I don't want to say wrong, but, yeah. you know, we're figuring ourselves out. I, I don't know many people who are like, oh, I totally had it down in my 20s. It, it's usually a, a roller coastery time. Um, and I think life stays a roller coaster, but you get better at dealing with that and the, the ups and downs. Mm-hmm. Um, how does it feel now as far as the the ups and downs with MS? Do you feel like you're, do you feel confident that like you, you have your care team that you love and are you optimistic or is it just very much just like here I am today and you're just very present about it? Um, I do have the care team. So I feel very like confident with all my doctors. Like I probably have like 15 doctors at this point for every little thing. Um, and so I feel like, okay, it's just taking it day by day. The MS is very stable, and so I don't worry about that. But every year I have to get MRIs, and every time I have to worry about that, it becomes very, very present. Like, this is real. Like, it's always part of my, in the back of my head. But when you have to go and get tests because you have something, then you're like, oh, yeah, I have to deal with this again. And yeah. like. Um, and then the lupus, you know, really threw me for a loop. And so I'm still adjusting to life with that, but I'm feeling so much better. But that took a year. Like, that's a long time to have to really process something. Yeah, absolutely. It makes sense that it's still pretty fresh. Uh, the MRIs, so that experience, are they looking to see changes? Yes. Yeah, so they're looking to see if the amount of lesions on my brain have multiplied, um, if they're more active. So far, they've been very stable or minor changes that they're, like, not worried about. Um, But I have to go on Tuesday, like, a few days from now, and I'll be like, okay. Like, I'm still worried, you know, because I have had other weird symptoms. And I'm like, well, what if this is all culminating in this, you know? Sure. And I imagine just even the idea of an MRI... Any, I mean, they're going to see in there. Like, I feel like that's nerve-wracking anyway. And then to know you already have MS and and that the, the first one for you turned out to be pretty surprising. And so I imagine there's d- – does it ever feel almost like – I don't know triggering is the right word, but have you had – did that impact your emotional response? Like, um, do you feel triggered by certain things because of the surprise of it all? Yeah. I mean, I think I do. Like, I'm still – trigger you know like sometimes I'm great I can go to a doctor no problem and sometimes I come home and I just start bawling like I'm like this is too much to deal with how am I going to do this like for the rest of my life like this isn't just oh you have this we'll cure you or you know whatever it's like it's forever so how do you adjust to all that Mm. um you know as for the triggers like I'm getting better at dealing with things like the MRIs for me um I almost look at them as a time to meditate and I close my eyes and they're loud and they're like pounding in your ear and you're think- and I think, okay, that sound is going in there and it's going to vibrate and fix my brain and like cure everything. <laughs> I don't You just know. zen out. <laughs> I totally zen out. But that took me a while to learn to that. Like before I would take like Xanax to go in the MRI. Like I was all like tight and upset and scared. There's so much growth in your journey. Do you seek specific types of emotional support in addition to is part of your care team like therapy or is that more the meditation and those types of emotional care um yeah I did do therapy at first it just didn't I I probably had the wrong therapist first of all I probably needed to find somebody who specifically had worked with chronic illness patients not just a regular therapist who was dealing with what you deal with in your 20s. Um, So that didn't work for me, but the meditation definitely works. And 
you know, I know there's a lot of talk about social media being like this terrible place and, you know, everyone compares themselves. But for me, it's like this great community of people that I've found that support me. And there's strangers all over the world who, if I post I'm having a bad day, they will comment and I will do the same for them. And I think that's really important to find your community, whatever that means, like whether it's social media, whether it's a support group or a therapist or friends or family, something. Yeah, that's really huge. And that you have been proactive about, again, creating the circles and the communities and finding those that will be supportive to you. I think that's really big. What's the biggest thing you've learned through this process? Ah. I mean, I really think it is the take things day by day. Like, I don't get stressed about things as much anymore, which I think is a good thing. That's the positive that came out of all of this is like, we have no control over anything. So worrying about the things you can't control, like, I just don't have that worry anymore. And somebody, I think my parents said it, they're like, maybe you're like too zen because you're just so aloof. Like, do you care about anything? I was like, I do, I do. But I just, I can't worry about those little things that I used to. Like, they don't mean anything to me anymore. Does that influence your writing? I feel like a lot of times any self-work we're doing, our whole lives obviously affect our writing, but the the ability to not worry, I feel like that takes up a lot of mental space for a lot of people and creatives especially. Like we will go down all these rabbit holes and all of that. Has it strengthened your creativity, would you say? Yeah, for sure. And I think giving myself permission to like just be open and honest like has strengthened the writing because I don't I don't have those fears. I don't really feel fear rejection anymore. Yeah, it sucks. Like I'll turn in an essay like hoping like this big magazine will publish it, but they don't. And then I'm like, "Okay, next." And yeah. then I sell it somewhere else. You know, like you just I don't know. I just don't care. I mean, I do care, but like you, you don't lose. take it personally. Yeah, just I don't on. take it personally anymore. I love your honesty. It's very refreshing. It's very the way that you can share so openly and that you're doing that in so many different ways. I think that's really, really powerful. Thanks. Yeah. Um, so tell us about the book and your decision, because obviously you said you were planning to write even when you first started dating and exploring. Did you foresee the book specifically? Um. I saw a book. So I had started in television, so I'd worked in TV. And right around when I got diagnosed with MS was when the Writers Guild went on strike. So there were no jobs for me anyways. And my whole life plan was to like make money in TV and then go write books. And I was like, I'll just start writing the book now. Um, and so I started writing it. And I took a class at UCLA, the community aspect at UCLA Extension. And it was really helpful just to have a place to go to share my stories that they were all strangers. So nobody was judging me. They were just judging the writing and not my life story. Um, and that was really freeing. Um, and I always wanted to publish it. I just didn't know how. And like, it took me eight years to write. Well, I've written other books that take me three weeks. Like if I know what I want to write, I can get it done. But this was just like such a journey. And I wrote half of it very presently, like as I was going to the doctor, as things were happening, as those bad dates were happening. And then I came back to it like years later and was able to add the sort of perspective that happens when you step away from something. Um, and so I was just like, this is a story I want to share. Like I said, when I went to the library and wanted to read other books by people with MS, there were no young women sharing their story. Yeah, that's got to be really big. And tell us about some of the feedback that you have gotten from people uh, from, as you mentioned earlier, you're hearing from people who are on this path too. What has surprised you about that? Um, I think the surprise is that like people reach out to me and then also, people think that because you wrote a book, you're some sort of like up here expert or something. And I'm like, I'm I'm just a regular person just who happens to write and knew how to write a book. If I knew how to do something else, I would have done that. You so know? did they say, do you like medical questions or? Medical questions are just like, somebody sent me a thing like I'm reaching out to all the famous people with MS. I was like, I am not famous. In fact, there's a line in my book that says I am not famous. Like, I am nobody. Like, I wrote a book. Like, that's it. Um, but it's, I mean, there's so many great people. And I always say, like, I know people read, reach out to me and say, like, thank you for writing this because you put voice to, like, everything I was feeling. I'm 20-some years old. I just got diagnosed. I don't know what to do. Um, I'm dating, I'm married, whatever, getting divorced, all these things happen. And I always feel like 
I'm so glad these people reach out to me because it makes me feel less alone because while I have great friends, my friends don't have MS. I don't know a lot of people with MS, you know, so it's nice to be able to connect to other people. Yeah, and to have even more meaning to what you're going through. It must be gratifying to know that your darkest days that you've had, that you have shared, have helped so many people. If you could send a message to yourself the day you were getting diagnosed, what would you want to tell that person? This is so funny you asked that because I literally a week ago just posted a younger photo of myself and said, here's what I would tell her. And I would tell you her, thank you. Not the typical like, oh, you're beautiful. You'll get through this. Everyone wants to say that. But thank you. Thank you for persevering. Thank you for being you. Thank you for being honest. Thank you for crying, for being upset, for like going through all of that because you let me be the person I am today. Mm, That's really beautiful. And what would you say to somebody who's listening, who is diagnosed with something either the same or similar? What's your kind of top advice when you are talking to someone who's brand new to their diagnosis? Yeah, I would say, look, it's going to be a rough year. That first year is tough. Um, And it's okay. And ask for help. Cry as much as you need to. Talk to your doctors as much as you need to. Like, it's okay to feel all these things. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to go out and do something like grand, like the movies say, like you're diagnosed, so now go, you know, skydive. You don't have to do anything. You can just like hole up in your house for a little bit and cry. You can go on vacation. You can do all these things. Life isn't over. It might feel like that for a while, but it really isn't. Mm, That's a really encouraging and important message. Thank you for that. And thank you for joining me today for writing your book and for telling your stories so vulnerably. I, I appreciate that so much. Thank you. And tell people where they can learn more about you and follow along, order your books by Lovesick. Yeah, so you can follow me on Instagram, uh, Corey Martin Writes. That's where I keep everything up to date. Uh, I also have a website, Corey Martin Writes, and the book Lovesick is available anywhere books are sold, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, anything like that. Awesome. And everyone, when you read it, please post a review. It's so helpful, and it's so hard to ask <laughs> authors hate asking I could tell you so please do that please do that and tell your friends about the book and I'm sure Corey would love to hear your thoughts too and if you're enjoying Girl Boner Radio please do subscribe on iTunes Spotify or iHeartRadio and follow along on my blog at augustmclaughlin.com thank you so much for listening and have a beautiful Girl Boner Embracing Week Girl Boner Radio is owned, operated, and executively produced by me, August McLaughlin, with technical producer and audio extraordinaire, Mackenzie Mazel, as part of the Period Podcast Network, an affiliate of Starburns Industries. Learn more about the Girl Boner podcast, brand, movement, and book series at girlboner.org, and more about Period at periodnetwork.com. 